You may recall when Horton the Elephant heard a who. It was on the 15th of May in the jungle of Newell, in the heat of the day, in the cool of the pool. Accepting the premise that the Who's spoke to Horton from a speck of dust that afternoon, could something so small be conscious? At risk of identifying with those nasty kangaroos, I must be skeptical as to the consciousness of Who's. The reason for this is, unfortunately, their size. A person is a person no matter how small, but is a being conscious no matter how small? Given that small insects like fruit flies have a few thousand neurons, and the speck of dust which makes up the whole world for the Who's, they're probably unable to manage a single nerve cell per person. On the other hand, their body form and behavioral capabilities suggest the contrary. They have buildings and vehicles, and they make musical instruments. They blew on bazookas and blasted great toots on clarinets, oompas, and boompas, and flutes. Animal cells can only get so small. They have a bilipid membrane and a nucleus and certain necessary organelles. Consciousness brought about on a network of integrated cells couldn't get to so minuscule as a size as would be required to produce complex brains for who's. But what do I know about who biology? Maybe they are made of something on an altogether smaller scale that never arose in earthly environments because the dimensions of the environment were not so constrained. I'm open to that. All right, I changed my mind. Who's are conscious? At first glance, it seems obvious enough that we should assume animals to have conscious experiences. This is certainly justifiable in the case of our mammalian cousins, monkeys, dogs, whales, and elephants. But already one can notice that the animals which first come to mind are those that have something in common with us, and are known to have some degree of intelligence and emotional expression. Thus we easily slip into looking for the animals which are the most social and human-like. But if dogs and whales are conscious, then why not mice and bats and the rest of mammals? Well, in truth, I can't give much justification for that, so I assume that all mammals are possessed of consciousness. I can attest that the organization of the rodent brain is very much like our own, including the neocortex, which has far fewer neurons than a monkey or a cat, but is nevertheless a six-layered network structure forming the outer layer of the cerebral hemispheres, just like what we have. All I am saying by claiming consciousness for animals is that it is like something to be such an animal. It experiences things. It is more than a zombie or a machine. The question persists as we expand out into the animal kingdom to more distant relatives, birds and reptiles, fish, arthropods, sea sponges. We have not yet left the animal kingdom, and yet it seems odd to wonder about the consciousness of sponges. Why? Because the behavior of sponges does not require a sophisticated nervous system. What good would subjective experiences be to a sponge? It functions more like a plant than an animal, doesn't it? And don't get me started on conscious plants. In previous episodes I've argued, although quite obviously, that conscious experiences are cultivated by evolutionary processes. The things which are good for you to ingest tend to taste good. Things that are harmful tend to cause pain. Threats tend to cause fear or aggression and so on. Ultimately, I am barred from knowing directly whether anything or anyone is conscious. I think, therefore I am. Are you? I reason that you are too. By extension of this reasoning, I think many other animals are possessed of consciousness. So the question of the day is this, how should we think about consciousness in other animals? In order to set the stage for this discussion, I'll take a look at a recent opinion paper published in Trends in Cognitive Sciences titled Dimensions of Animal Consciousness. The authors, Jonathan Birch, Alexandra Schnell, and Nicola Clayton, write, quote, At present, the field is young and beset by foundational controversy. 
controversy about the criteria for consciousness and the methods for studying those criteria. At the heart of these debates lies a conceptual question. How can we make sense of variation in consciousness across the animal kingdom? Does it make sense to say that some animals are more conscious than others? Does consciousness come in degrees? If it does, how can degrees of consciousness be measured and investigated? For example, could a bird be more conscious than a fish? Could an octopus be more conscious than a bee? Unquote. Here they introduce the idea of levels of consciousness, which I think is a natural enough proposition. But for my taste, the question of consciousness, which is to say the hard question, is what is it? In terms of physics, by what means does consciousness manifest? Is it a fundamental property, as the panpsychists would say? Or is it an emergent property of highly integrated physical systems? Thus, the idea of levels becomes rather tenuous. Is the property there or not? From my perspective, the variation from simple to complex would be better approached as a matter of what the subject is conscious of, as opposed to how conscious it is. The authors continue, quote, In studies of disorders of consciousness in humans, the idea of levels of consciousness has been influential. Clinicians assessing patients with disorders of consciousness assign a level of consciousness, with coma at one end of the scale, conscious wakefulness at the other, and various intermediate grades, such as deep sleep and light sleep in between. It is tempting to apply this to non-human animals. We could attempt to construct a single sliding scale of animal consciousness, along which birds, such as corvids, fish, cephalopods, such as octopuses, bees, and so on, could all be placed. This, however, would be a mistake. Recently, the value of the levels of consciousness framework for conceptualizing disorders of consciousness in humans has been called into question. The main concern is that if we try to force states of consciousness into a one- or two-dimensional scale, we will inevitably neglect important dimensions of variation. Critics of the levels framework argue that we should instead adopt a multidimensional framework, capturing several different dimensions of variation. This point carries over in the case of animal consciousness, where the variation is likely to be even more substantial and multifaceted. If the overall conscious states of humans with disorders of consciousness vary along multiple dimensions, we should also expect the typical healthy conscious states of animals of different species to vary along many dimensions. If we ask, is a human more conscious than an octopus, the question barely makes sense. Any single scale for evaluating questions such as these would end up neglecting important dimensions of variation. For this reason, we suggest that animal consciousness research should adopt a multidimensional approach, not a single scale approach when thinking about variation across the animal kingdom." Unquote. So far this looks to be on the right track. The most interesting question is, of course, is the animal conscious? Having guessed that the animal is conscious, we then want to know what is it like to be that animal? Here we get to the multi-dimension proposed by the uh, authors of the opinion piece. In brief, they write, quote, What are the main dimensions of variation we can investigate? What do we currently know about those dimensions? What future work would help us learn more about them? Our aim here is to propose a multi-dimensional framework for thinking about animal consciousness. We will highlight five significant dimensions of variation. Perceptual richness, P-richness. Evaluative richness, E-richness. Integration at a time, unity, and across time, temporality, and self-consciousness, selfhood, unquote. The paper goes on to specify what is meant by these five dimensions in detail. I'll give you a quick summary. Perceptual richness refers to the sensations that the animal has with regard to th things like vision, hearing, touch. As far as I'm concerned, the richness of these perceptions should correlate to the amount of cortical nervous tissue 
that it's dedicated to it. Humans are highly visual creatures and we have the dedicated cortical real estate to show for it. No other modality takes up so much room in the upper brain. I understand monkeys to be visually oriented in this way too. But as we have observed before, a blind person is no less conscious than a person with sight. This provides a good case in point for the error in thinking about levels of consciousness. Think of a bat with its ultrasonic mapping of the world. I see no reason why a bat should not literally see the world by means of echolocation. We can't do that, but it's silly to use that as evidence that bats are more conscious than we are. If there is a difference in how much perceptual richness an animal has, overall, I suggest this comes down to the variety of its content, not the degree of its consciousness. It's interesting to wonder what the sense of smell is like for an animal like a dog. The perceptual richness of that modality is so great for the dog compared to the human that we might as well consider ourselves to have negligible conscious perception of odors. We are more or less nose-blind. The authors propose that different modalities will have different levels of richness for different animals, so they suggest a different p-richness for different modalities within the same species. That all makes sense to me. The second dimension is e-richness, where e stands for evaluative by which they refer to the valenced emotional senses, pleasure and pain, anger, love, grief, and so on. Here again, the idea is that animals will vary along this dimension with regard to the content they experience. To me, senses with valence are evidence that consciousness serves a function in species that have them. These are means to adjust our behavior according to evolved values. If the animal is just a machine, then it need not have a conscious mind to experience these valences. If a conscious mind is to be of any utility, then it must serve a function, as, I, as I have argued previously, but it must be constrained by evolved values so that the mind acts for the benefit of the animal in its environment, and ultimately for its genes. The third dimension is integration at a time, or unity. Unity has always been a central feature of consciousness to my thinking. In an important sense, unity is the whole thing. This is why I don't think panpsychism is particularly useful as a theoretical approach to understanding consciousness. Suppose, for example, that it is like something to be a single cell. I don't see how this is possible, but let's just suppose it. This means that by definition, a tree or a frog or a tree frog is full of consciousness, but that does not necessarily make the tree or the frog conscious. I am interested in whether the frog has a mind with subjective experiences. I'm further interested in what those experiences entail. Does the frog perceive an environment? Does it feel and think? Whether the frog's skin cells are individually conscious, while being a bizarre suggestion in itself, since I can't imagine what those cells would be conscious of, it gets us nowhere near my real interest in the frog's consciousness. I don't know whether my lung cells and liver cells are conscious, but I do know that I am conscious as a unified mind. That is the consciousness that needs explaining. A proposal that all cells or even all atoms are conscious is adding an additional claim rather than helping to reduce the problem of consciousness. In this paper, the authors suggest that integration at a time is a dimension of consciousness. They point out that birds have a natural split brain with nothing like a corpus callosum connecting the two halves. They also note that octopus have separate ganglia localized to the arms rather than a central integrated structure. The natural question is, might birds have two separate conscious minds? They might, but I think it's an error to consider this to be a dimension of consciousness. Consciousness itself, as far as I'm concerned, is a unified thing. If there are two conscious minds, then so be it. Each of those individual minds is unified. Their fourth proposed dimension is integration across time. They write, quote, Normal human experience is highly integrated across time. Our experience of the world takes the form of a continuous stream, one moment flowing into the next. 
For example, we experience the leaves of a tree blowing in the wind. We do not infer the motion from a series of static snapshots. Human experience is also temporally integrated across longer timescales. We are able to recall past experiences and simulate future experiences, a form of mental time travel. Let us call this dimension temporality. What could constitute evidence for a temporally integrated stream rather than a staccato series of fragmented experiences? One possibility is to look for mechanisms that edit sensory input to produce a coherent, continuous stream for discontinuous stimuli. In humans, evidence for such mechanisms comes from the color phi illusion, in which two spatially separated, differently colored dots flashed in sequence are perceived as a single moving dot that changes color halfway across the gap. The brain is not simply mistaking two static stimuli for a moving stimulus, it is constructing a coherent account of how the stimulus is changing. Color phi has received a great deal of discussion in the philosophy of consciousness." Unquote. As you should know by now, I'm a big proponent of temporal integration as central to consciousness theory. Sadly, the authors do not cite my work. I can forgive them, though, because my framework remains pretty obscure in the field. In any case, temporality seems like a reasonable dimension to wonder about with regard to animals, especially more distant relatives. If there are a series of conscious minds, one after another in discontinuity, can they really be said to be of one instance of consciousness, though? I think not. The fifth dimension is self-consciousness. Here the authors say, quote, Self-consciousness, or selfhood, is the conscious awareness of oneself as distinct from the world outside. Like all the other dimensions, this is a capacity that admits of gradations. A minimal level of self-consciousness may be present in a wide range of animals. It involves registering a difference between self and other, registering some experiences as representing internal bodily events and other experiences as representing events in an external world. Any complex, actively mobile animal needs a way of disentangling changes to its sensory input that are due to its own movements from changes due to events in the world. A more sophisticated grade of self-consciousness involves awareness of one's own body as a persisting object that exists in the world. This capacity is plausibly needed to pass a mirror mark test, in which the test subject is able to recognize a mark seen in a mirror as a mark on its own body. Chimpanzees bottlenosed dolphins, Asian elephants, and magpies have reportedly passed such a test. A striking study in 2019 reported that a fish, the cleaner rash, also can pass this test. Fish able to view a colored mark on their throat in the mirror were much more likely to exhibit throat scraping behavior as if to remove a parasite than fish who had transparent marks or no access to a mirror. These results are controversial, but they suggest that the grade of self-consciousness required to pass the mirror mark test is possessed by a wide range of animals." Unquote. I've always been pretty skeptical about this mirror test for self-consciousness. The reason is that a robot could be manufactured to be able to pass such a test without needing to be conscious, just as an algorithm could learn to find faces without being conscious of anything at all, let alone conscious of recognizing a face. I'm not suggesting that chimpanzees and bottlenose dolphins are non-conscious creatures. I just see this as more of a cognitive capability than evidence for consciousness. Just because something can carry out a complex function does not mean that it is like something to be that something as it does so. Biological research depends on animal subjects. In my experience, rodents. Other common model organisms are zebrafish and fruit flies. Zebrafish are generally used for neurodevelopmental studies, and fruit, fruit flies for genetics. Old-world monkeys are a kind of gold standard for studies on perception, but I've never had the opportunity to work with them. So it's the noble rodent for me. 
Given my work with them, I find the possibility that rats and mice are non-conscious creatures pretty remote. I'd like to have a research program that uses optogenetics to suppress neuronal communication in the rat cerebral cortex and try to disintegrate the thalamocortical system. I don't expect this to cause the animals to fall unconscious in the sleeping sense. Rather, I think it might be possible to temporarily induce them to non-conscious zombie status. I don't know whether this is practical, but the data could be of real interest. Of course, the whole scheme depends on rats being conscious, and also upon consciousness requiring functional integration. But I think both of these assumptions are reasonable. The idea would be to determine what rats can and cannot do in the absence of conscious experience. Consciousness is a unified composition of contents. What might the simplest consciousness be? It seems to me that it would consist in few contents with a very crude level of resolution. And as I've said before, the earliest instances of animal consciousness would probably have served no function. I'll share what I said previously on the topic because it was quite a long time ago in episode 7 on, on evolution. I said, quote, High degrees of ordered complexity are an exception, not a rule in the universe. The evolution of neural structures composed of increasingly complex networks of neurons in certain species of the animal kingdom stumbled upon the phenomenon of consciousness. What were the first qualia experienced by our earliest conscious ancestors? They could have been like anything. The smell of cut grass, or the sharp sting of a paper cut. A field of flashing lights, or a low bassy rhythm. More likely they were something vaguer, something tenuous, non-specific, and unlike any reportable human experience. Even modern humans struggle to explain their feelings and sensations to themselves and others. The neural substrate from which the first qualia emerged had itself been naturally selected for its utility in bringing about adaptive behaviors. The qualia arose by chance, so in any case the first qualia were, in all likelihood, epiphenomenal. They were an emergent property of a neural substrate which had incidentally produced the necessary conditions for their existence. Consider the earliest conscious animals. These creatures would have been descended from neuronally complex recent ancestors featuring rapid communication among networked neurons. They would have been the beneficiaries of a behavioral repertoire that fitted them well to their environment. The rapid and complex neuronal arrangements, which they had inherited, would have resulted from generations of natural selection pressures, expanding sensory processing and motor capabilities. They may have also had implicit cognitive capabilities due to algorithmic neural processing, which would enable flexibility and behavioral responses to varying contexts and stimuli. At some moment, under just the right conditions, when high-frequency activities formed an appropriate structure, the first of the qualia emerged. A point of view would come into being, if only for one brief moment. In accordance with the TICL framework, this would require a highly integrated system of some size within which a differentiated group of neuronal elements became a subsystem having some appreciable quality from the point of view of the system. But the first qualia probably had no bearing upon the survival and reproduction of the organisms which beheld them. In all likelihood, these qualia would have borne no relation to the functional modality which had given rise to them. If they arose from an optic sensory system, they nevertheless would not incidentally have created a visual image. If they arose from an auditory sensory system, they would not incidentally have created a sound. Neuronal structures interacting among themselves would have produced a subjective representation of some kind, but they had not evolved for the production of such a representation. The first qualia need not have provided a service to their organism. I propose that the earliest subjective experiences were arbitrary epiphenomena arising by chance from a substrate which had evolved to exhibit complex, high-speed interactions mediating between sensory inputs and behavioral outputs. 
In accordance with the current theories of consciousness, including the TICL, the first qualia would likely have arisen from sufficiently integrated and differentiated neuronal activities. Unquote. We might further speculate that consciousness, since it is clearly possible in the universe we inhabit, and within the bounds of our physics, that property might have arisen on separate occasions, the way that eyes and wings have done. There are certain solutions that natural selection is bound to stumble upon. This is one way that you could imagine octopus being conscious. It would have to be an independent occurrence because other mollusks tend to be sedentary and have simple nervous systems. Octopus seem remarkably intelligent and distinguished within their clade. But as I've said, that does not mean it is like something to be an octopus. Given the architecture of their nervous system, might it be like something to be one of the arms of an octopus? The jury is out on insects. I tend to favor them being non-conscious little drones. The brain contains thousands of neurons, but nowhere near billions. Remember also that most of the human brain does not contribute to conscious experience. The manner in which they are wired is an essential specialization of the thalamocortical system, which we share with other mammals. This bias on my part is more than simply a justification for killing bugs. In fact, I don't treat them as non-conscious when I encounter them. I just find it unlikely that their behaviors and the system that underlies them is capable of producing conscious experiences. One wonders about colonies, though. A whole colony of ants or bees is capable of emergent operations that are distributed among the membership. I'm reminded of the way that our bodies share the labor among different tissues and organ systems. Our bodies share their genetic code, but differentiate all manner of cells to do different tasks in different places. Colonies of insects are not unlike that. They're highly genetically related, even clonal, and the queen is quite analogous to our gamete cells. In order for a colony to have a collective consciousness, the situation must be similar to our thalamocortical system. The individuals would have to communicate rapidly and reciprocally. And if they could accomplish that, then the colony might be able to act as an integrated whole. Imagine what it would be like to be a colony of bees. Finally, might consciousness be possible in the absence of a nervous system? Who knows what an alien species might have evolved? The mycelium of certain fungi come to mind. If these tendril-like outgrowths are in rapid communication with, another, with one another such that they form a temporally integrated structure, I predict that they might be conscious. I propose that consciousness is the integration of causality in time that occurs upon a complex physical substrate. Whether in the brain, in silica, or in mycelia, such a structure might manifest. Wherever it does, consciousness should emerge. And where there is consciousness, there is meaning. Horton heard a who on a speck of dust in the jungle of Newell. Are we listening in all the right places?